Before I introduce Catherine and we begin properly, you'll have heard by now that on Wednesday night, she won the Jan Medley-Cott Acorn Foundation Prize for Fiction. So I was going to say, could we welcome here with a paki paki, but you beat me to it. Um, I really hope that Catherine needs little introduction, but just in case there's anyone unfamiliar with her, as well as being a creative writing teacher at Waikato University and founder of the very generous Sargison Short Story Prize, she's of course a multi-award winning novelist, one of our very best. Catherine started with a bang in the 1990s with three acclaimed novels, and then, like many of us, had an enforced break of many years from writing while she dealt with life coming at her. On a personal note, she's now my absolute guru uh, because she found her writing mojo again in her late 40s and has been firing off rockets ever since. And I think we'd all quite like a little bit of that. The Chidji Renaissance began in 2016 with the exquisite The Wish Child, set in World War II Germany, which deservedly won the Acorn Foundation Prize. It was followed closely by a much more experimental book, uh, the Beat of the Pendulum, which she described as a found novel, and another German-set historical novel followed, Remote Sympathy, which did brilliantly internationally, long-listed for the UK Women's Prize and short-listed for the Dublin Literary Prize, which is one of the world's richest literary awards, with a long list nominated by our wonderful public libraries. Catherine has another new novel, a psychological thriller set in the early 80s, called Pet, coming out next month, if you can believe it, and we might be able to give you a sneak preview of that near the end of this session. But the book we're here to discuss today is, of course, The Axeman's Carnival. It took flight just late last year with one of the most memorable narrators in the history of New Zealand stories, Tama the Magpie, found as a fledgling and adopted by Marnie, who, with her husband Rob, a champion axeman, is trying to scratch out a living on a farm in the South Island high country. Tama, as narrator, soars. His voice provides dark poetry, dramatic irony, startling wisdom, and trickster delights. It swoops and cackles and sings. Soon he's lighting up the internet and narrating the stories of his humans. The novel is mythic and delightful and draws deeply from the well of our landscape of Gothic unease. It's quite simply the best novel I've read in ages. So, Catherine, how are you feeling after Wednesday night? Kia ora, Rachel. Um Good morning, everyone. It's so lovely to be back at the Auckland Writers' Festival. Um, Wednesday night was just uh, an ecstatic moment. Um, I, I'm still riding that high, but I'm somewhere between two poles of um, exhilaration and exhaustion. I've been doing a lot of interviews, a lot of talking about the book. Um, I've had to lock Tama in the ensuite so that he doesn't muscle in. He's particularly keen on TV appearances. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but um, I, I don't know if you saw it, Rachel, but um, I tucked my two acorns into bed in the hotel last <laughs> night and put a little photo on Twitter of the, the acorns tucked, tucked up for the night. Well, I really was hoping you'd wear them as a pair of earrings, actually. I, yeah, I do need to actually get you to take that photo of me <laughs> holding them. Um, before we start, getting into the interview, I think it would be really great if we had a wee sample of Tama's voice, if you wouldn't mind doing a wee reading. Okay, um, I would love to. So this is a section where um, the tension is really ramping up between Tama and Rob, um, the farmer who cannot stand him, does not want him, 
in the marital home, um, cannot stand the noise of him, the racket all the time. Um, and Marnie is constantly sort of on eggshells around Rob because theirs is a violent marriage and she doesn't want to inflame him, but also she loves Tama. Uh, Tama doesn't quite understand this dynamic. Um, this section <laughs> mentions um, the fact that Tama wears costumes that Marnie dresses him in, so you understand that bit. And also throughout the book, um, he mentions d different songs by name that he whistles, so there's one of those in here. Um, and all the language that you hear from Tama that's actually spoken is um, phrases that he's picked up from his humans, um, from Rob, online, from the TV, from the radio. So that's an example of, of this. Um, Rob wasn't sleeping, and it was my fault. I kept hearing things on the TV and the radio and Marnie's phone, and I kept wanting to practice them for her, and sometimes I practiced them at night. They croaked and rattled out of me, those unwieldy human words. I couldn't keep my trap shut. That's cocaine, all right, Trent. Book him. And how can I love you if you won't let me in? And watch the weight melt away before your very eyes and I will take you down, motherfucker. <laughs> I said them in my bed, tucked under my yellow blanket, my bear unraveling next to me and the eye watching us both. Tama, Tama, whispered Marnie, and she was a shadow above me as the sun, moon, stars, clouds turned on their threads. You need to be quiet, you'll wake him, please. But I knew she loved to hear me speak in her language. You have the right to remain silent, I said. <laughs> Anything you say can and will be used against you. In the morning, Rob crashed around the kitchen and I kept my distance, jumping at every loud noise. He snatched at the radio to turn it off, then banged his coffee cup down next to it, stabbed his knife into the cold-hearted butter like a monster. I swear to God, Marnie, one more night like that and I will lose it. I adjusted my Superman costume. He can't help himself, Rob. He's just following his instincts. My instinct is to wring his neck. All right with you if I follow it? To be fair, you weren't sleeping that well before he arrived. He's got to go, Marnie. If you won't get rid of him, I will. We tried taking him back to the Pines, remember? He wants to live here. Well, you made sure he can't survive in the wild. This is his home. His home. Ours. It's our home. And what about all his followers? They'd be gutted. It's not natural. In news just to hand, I said, a serious crash at the Takanini off-ramp has closed State Highway 1. Jesus fucking Christ, shut up, said Rob. I started to whistle, there's nay luck aboot the hoose, and he roared. I suppose I should have tried to behave myself, and I was wary of him, don't get me wrong. I saw the strength in his hard hands, and I knew it could lead nowhere good. I knew he'd had a gutsful. But I couldn't keep quiet. I was my own worst enemy. Me and my friends were like, twerking, I said. <laughs> he came for me then, lurching through the air, flailing and flightless. Meow, I said, <laughs> as I dived for the cat door. And then I was out and soaring into the brittle white day my Superman cape flaring out behind me.
I just love Tama's voice, and, and I'm, I'm actually I'm in awe of your um, skill and creativity in, in bringing this voice to the page. And I mean, Tama, the things he says end up being ironic, they end up foreshadowing things that happen. They, um, they put the characters in very awkward situations. Uh, he repeats things at opportune and sometimes inopportune moments. Um, you know, name, he calls people things like Ethan Bloody McKay because that's his name, um, according to Rob. Um, so how did, you, how did you go about assembling that voice? And, and I guess, what, I mean, what kind of um, gave you the idea to create this incredible character? <laughs> um, to, I've talked before about how I, I was casting around for... Um, an unusual narrator for my next novel, and, and I'd been thinking about how much I enjoyed writing from an unexpected point of view in The Wish Child, and I won't say who that narrator is for people who might want to read that book, but um, I found that quite liberating, um, and I wanted that same um, kind of sense of novelty, I suppose, with, with a new book. Um, I actually had the title first. Um, in 2008, I went to Tuatapere with my husband to the One Room Museum there, and I saw all these um, photographs taken over the years at the rural event, the Axman's Carnival, and I thought, wow, that's a really great name for a book. And so I tucked it away for 12 years <laughs> until 2020 when um, I started writing this book. And I don't know, several things just came together to hatch Tama. I remembered that title. Um, my mother-in-law died and we inherited her diaries that she'd written when um, my husband was growing up on a high country sheep station, so I read those. And I wanted um, a non-human narrator, but one who could talk, and so that eventually suggested a bird, and then I finally realized that the magpies were right outside my office window at home stalking around on the grass outside, on the rural land outside, and roosting in the pines outside. And they were also singing to me every morning when I opened my window, and had been for months. I just hadn't really sort of put two and two together. So from that point on, it felt like Tama really um, hatched, fully formed. And he has always felt very real to me. I, I know it sounds kind of, um, I don't know, a little bit twee, perhaps, but it really did feel as if he was writing the book, as if he had somehow materialized and he wanted me to tell this story and he was quite pushy about it. Um, and I remember uh, last year I was flying down to Queenstown for the Queenstown Festival and I was, so I was going to tweet about Tama flight so that I was flying down on the plane but that Tama was flying down just under bird power. And I took um, a photo of the um, amazing Otago landscape from the plane, and Tama was going to, to tweet about that um, when we landed. And I was sort of, you know, thinking, I wonder if he'll get there first. And then we landed, and the first thing I saw on the grass at the side of the runway was a magpie, and immediately I thought, oh, there he is, he got here first. <laughs> and it just took me a minute to remind myself that, no, no, Catherine. <laughs> That's not Tama, that's some random bird. He's, he's from inside your head. <laughs> yeah. um, 
But in terms of who he is in the book, you know, he fulfills a lot of different roles in the book. He's, um, he's a court jester in some ways for the reader with those non sequiturs that he just kind of drops, often like tiny bombs, into the conversation. Um, he's that kid in the school playground who keeps repeating everything you say until you're just losing your mind and he doesn't care. Um, so he's, you know, he's a stone in Rob's shoe in that respect. Um, so he's there for comic relief a lot of the time, but he's also um, a darker presence. He's a witness. He's the only other living thing inside the marital home who sees everything that goes on inside that home and inside that marriage, and he might talk about it. Um, he has a voice now, and he might start to give the game away. Uh, he's also a surrogate child for Marnie, um, who desperately wants a family, but um, doesn't have children yet, and is feeling that as a big gap in her life. So he fills that gap for her, and by the same token, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship. She fills the gap for him of, of mother, first of all, um, and then it becomes a little bit more complex and, and eatable. Yeah. <laughs> we almost don't want to talk about that. Might give things away, but... Um, and so did, just, did the fact that you chose a magpie, did that also you know, magpies kind of collecting nature and things, did that kind of, you know, feed into the, the idea for his voice as well? Yeah, I mean, he collects language. He collects phrases and words um, in the same way as he collects these little tokens and treasures from the house and stores them away. Um, language, you know, words are another shiny thing that uh, appeal to him yeah. as little treasures. Um, but he's also a creature of the wild who has been domesticated, not 100%, but um, he's, he's, a, he's a stranger in a strange land, and I'm always quite interested in writing about um, characters who somehow don't belong or who are outsiders or fringe dwellers. Um, and so, although he's raised in a house and although he, he loves Marnie and he makes the decision um, when he's, he's briefly returned to the wild, he makes the decision that, no, actually, this is not where I belong. I want to live in the house with Marnie. Um, there's a little bit of the wild still in him, and that's never going to go away. Um, even with his name, you know, I'm, I'm playing with lots of different things with his name. It's short for Tamagotchi, which is what Marnie names him after the egg-shaped toys she remembers from her childhood, but of course it also has the Māori meaning of son or child, and to me it also has the echo of the word tame in it, um, so he's a creature that um, Māni and to a certain extent Rob try to tame, but they never can um, completely. There's one scene I loved writing when he has gone completely viral online and has hundreds of thousands of followers all over the world, who want the cute footage, um, the cute photos, and the, the cute little sound bites. And um, when the eye is on, so I, that, I mentioned that in that reading, the eye is the, the cameras that are placed throughout their house that beam his antics around the world. 
one day he comes in with a, a mouse that he's caught and starts to disembowel it in front of the cameras for his presumably horrified audience, because that's not what they're tuning in for. Um, and so, the, you know, the eye is rapidly switched off, and um, Lakshmi, who's the, the viral marketing consultant, beams in and says, oh my God, we have to, you know, we have to post an immediate apology. Cut, cut, and it's cut. worded in the way that, you know, a contrite politician might post a kind of smarmy apology. Mm. Um, and so, that, you know, they have to go into damage control mode when that wild side um, comes out, mm. and it's quite unpredictable. But that's almost quite a good... Um Metaphor for the whole book, really, the, you know, the twee cute internet things, the funny things, you know, kind of mixed with this kind of, this sort of visceral kind of horror as well. Um, and you, you talked about, um, you know, how you felt like maybe Tama was being channeled into you. Do you, do you subscribe to the notion that, that stories kind of float around in the ether and, and we pull them down? Or do you, do you believe that you just have to build them from the ground up? Um, you know, to my creative writing students, I always say you have to work to be inspired. You know, you have to have a routine. You have to sit at your desk day in, day out, and kind of ploddingly, one foot after the other, um, create this thing that, when it's finished, feels like it was no effort at all. <laughs> So I think I, I think I subscribe to both. Yeah. You know, I do feel quite superstitious about my writing in a lot of ways, um, and I do feel as if Tama somehow did exist out there and was just waiting for me to find him. But I also remember the hard slog of kind of piecing him together bone by bone and, and feather by feather. Mm. Yeah, so it's a bit of both. And once you've done that piecing together, do you find that the, the, because I understand that you kind of revise as you go, do you, to make things, mm -hmm. once you've really perfected that voice in your head, do you just, does it just kind of take off after that, or does the whole process be that meticulous? Um, Tama won't shut up. Yeah, I think his voice really did take off, but he's not satisfied with um, having just the novel. He's, he's still on Twitter, and he's quite vocal, he's quite rude often on Twitter. Um, I, I just, I couldn't put him back in the box when I finished the book. He demanded uh, an online presence, so, yeah. No, it was, actually that was when I was um, editing the book, and I think it was even quite late in the process at the, at the proofreading stage. And I realized that at one point, um, I do mention Tama's Twitter handle, Marnie says what his Twitter handle, handle is, and I read that in the proofs and I thought, oh, well, I wonder if any readers might go to Twitter to see if he's on there. Oh, I can vouch for that, that readers do do that kind of thing. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, well, I better give him his yeah, own yeah. online presence then. <coughs> You're yeah. lucky the handle wasn't already taken, actually. <laughs> um, Just, to, just, um, just on the note of social media, um, because, uh, or for a start, obviously um, Tom is on Twitter because he's a bird. Yes. I wonder now if you know social media moves so quickly, he might be on TikTok. He might create a TikTok account as well. That seems to be where things are going. Um, so he's he's on the internet. He appears to be Marnie and Rob's ticket to freedom because you know he's taking on sponsorships and, and all of those kinds of things. He, they dress him up in funny outfits. I, I'd really like to know 
what's your personal relationship with social media? Mm. Um, yeah, it's a knotty one, and I am expressing that in the book too through the way that um, Tama is monetized. You know, he, Mani loves him, he is her child, but she also gets caught up in the fact that he might be the thing that can save them financially and therefore that can save her from Rob. Um, a lot of the reason for Rob's violence is the fact that they're in this dreadful position with the farm. Um, so Mani recognises that Tama um, might be her feathered saviour. Um, but in the book, the followers are, they do love Tama as well, but there's always the sense that um, they're walking a knife edge, and you do walk a knife edge with that kind of engagement with you know, whoever happens to be out there to jump on your thread on a place like Twitter. Um, it can turn feral pretty quickly, yeah. and the followers um, you know, find out where they live and turn up in person, and there's a child there one day who wants a souvenir from Tama, so when nobody's looking, plucks out one of his feathers. You know, it can turn quite nasty and quite cruel. Um, there's another scene that I won't go into in detail, but um, Marnie's in danger, and the followers, most of them, seem to be far more concerned about Tama than about a threatened woman. Yeah. For me, um, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I have a raging addiction <laughs> to Facebook and now more recently to Twitter, although I'm still quite a Twitter novice and I'm sure I make um, lots of kind of rookie mistakes <laughs> in posting. Um, I find it a weird territory but also a fascinating one. I love that it gives me a sense of community with my fellow writers. I absolutely love that about it because we are generally on our own um, in a, you know, a room with the door shut, just kind of working away on our writing um, and don't really have colleagues as such day to day in that job. So I love that um, it can put me in touch with my writing colleagues. I love that it can put me in touch with, you know, far-flung friends and family, um, and that I can engage with people who enjoy my books, but I also know how quickly it can turn weird and, like I said, feral. So, um, the other day, I was, uh, last weekend actually, I was flying home from Featherston Booktown, their great little festival, and I noticed that on the plane just across the aisle from me, um, a woman was reading Remote Sympathy. I thought, oh, this has never happened to me before. Do I, do I say something? And so I, I kind of stewed for the whole flight and, and took some surreptitious photos of her, kind of willing her to show the cover, show the cover. Um, finally got what I thought was a decent photo. And she had... Um, a scarf on her lap, and uh, I, when, I, when we touched down, I did say to her, oh, I really like your taste in novels, <laughs> hoping that she wasn't going to say, yeah, it's really dragging, I don't think I'm going to finish it. <laughs> but she didn't. She said that she was really enjoying it, and I, then I outed myself, and 
she got quite excited and the woman next to me on the other side got quite excited and the woman on the other side of her got excited too, <laughs> offered a pen so that I could sign it. Um, but, so when I got off the plane and she was sort of at a, at a distance where she wouldn't see me jumping onto Twitter, um, I posted a photo, it didn't show her face or anything, she wasn't identifiable, but I posted it on Twitter. And um, it kind of went viral, it got, I don't know, 700 and something. People love stories like that. Likes, yeah. yeah, they do. And that's what I thought that they were liking. But then I started reading some of the comments and people were saying, is that a raw chicken on her lap? Is that, <laughs> is that plucked poultry on her lap? And they were looking at this pink and yellow scarf that was on her lap that she'd kind of bunched up in such a way that it accidentally looked like a plucked raw chicken. Um, and so my magical moment of... <laughs> you know, every writer's dream um, was, was, was a little bit ruined. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that also speaks to our first instinct often when something funny or interesting happens to us is to immediately jump on Twitter and yeah. tell the world about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was also thinking you were talking about the knife edge that they walk in and how, how the... the adoring crowd can also turn quite menacing and it reminded me of the, where the wild things are and the, yeah. you know, we'll eat you up, we love you so. Yes. Yeah, there's an appetite for Tama. They want a piece of him mm. um, to the extent that they will come into the house when Rob and Marnie aren't there and kind of make themselves at home and take selfies with him. Yeah, yeah. which is terrifying. Yeah. Um, your novels are always meticulously researched. Um, which is one of the things I love about them. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the research that you did for this novel? Yeah, it was vast, actually. I sort of thought, you know, coming out the other end of researching two novels set in Nazi Germany, um, which was massive and often involved reading um, a lot of material in German, I thought, oh, this will be much easier. You know, it's set in the present day. It's set in New Zealand. It's a landscape that I'm familiar with. Alan, my husband, um, you know, grew up on the high country sheep station, so I'll have him on hand, it'll be fine. Uh, but actually, it, it required a huge amount of research, and um, in particular into magpie behaviour and anatomy, because I wanted to get that exactly right. I wanted Tama to be um, scientifically believable. Um, the only thing that I've kind of bent the rules on in that respect is his mimicry, the fact that he can learn words straight away. Um, but he's a very intelligent bird, so I, th I think that's entirely believable think, for who Tama is. I think we is. can give you that creative license. Yeah, thank you. Suspend our disbelief. Um, but the re you know, so I read lots of quite dry scientific papers um, about magpies, about their distribution, their introduction to New Zealand, um, the different subspecies in New Zealand, um, about um, how they learn song, about their social behaviour, um, about how they ostracise certain members if they don't conform to quite rigidly enforced rules. Um, so I used all that in writing about the magpie world, but also um, fascinating kind of nuggets of science fed the story too. So, for instance, the fact that their syrinx can produce, which is, which is the, like the larynx in humans, um, their syrinx can produce two notes at once. And that really spoke to um, this idea of Tama having two voices in the book. 
So there's the voice um, that he uses to speak to us, the voice that is narrating the story, and that's um, quite an elevated, articulate, often poetic voice. Um, and that's kind of how we all sound in our own heads, I think. We all think we're poets in our own heads. Um, so that's Tama's internal voice. But then the other voice is everything that he says that's in quotation marks in the book, and that's what the humans hear. And those are all the phrases that he's um, gleaned from wherever, and that's quite a different mm. voice. That's, um, you know, the much less um, intelligent, um, much kind of harsher voice, um, I suppose. So that, yeah, that grew from um, that little nugget of research. And the other thing I loved that I stumbled across when I was researching magpies was um, the fact that the, their eyes are laterally placed, so on the, the sides of their heads, which means they can see two things at once. And um, at different points throughout the book, Tama notes that, you know, with, with my left eye I saw this, and with my right eye I saw that. Um, and it's been discovered, so a woman called Gisela Kaplan, who's an Australian researcher and the world authority on the Australian magpie, um, in her book, I read that the right eye is um, used for objects and um, for things that belong to a particular routine. It's, it's associated with a sense of calm. And the left eye is associated with, um, with position, with geography, um, and also with high emotions, with fear, with danger, um, and also with with positive, strong emotions. So even though I don't expect the reader to notice those differences between left eye and right eye, I, it was important to me to get that right. Yeah. But it kind of opens up narrative possibilities to you. Does it kind of, I mean, sometimes when you do research, yeah, these little gems pop up that something pops and it can feed into the book. Yeah, it was um, definitely giving that sense of authenticity to Tama's bird behaviour, so to the ways that his family um, treat him and, in fact, shut him out from the bird world because he's, he's tainted with, um, with Mani now. He's, he's kind of made his decision and therefore he's no longer welcome mm. um, in the bird world. So that was all um, fed from research into um, how groups of birds work in the wild. Um, but also, sort of casting the net wider than that, I um, wanted to make sure that I had the landscape of central Otago right. So I spoke to about five different um, current high, state, um, high country sheep station farmers. Um, including John Perriam, who's the owner of Shrek. <laughs> he was really helpful. Um, and, and the others were very gracious with their time as well. And um, I would, you know, interview them and then go off and write bits of the book and, and then email them those passages and say, have I got this right? Um, things like, you know, is it geographically possible to have an area that was flooded when the Kalutha Dam was built, um, so there was land lost, a farmhouse would have been lost, and on the land that they sort of moved to higher up is now a cherry orchard, and then the high country farm, and then the mountains, and yet, I, I really wanted that to be possible, and yes it was, thank God. I spoke to um, 
a man who now works for Contact Energy, who was involved in the Clutha Dam project, and he was incredibly useful in getting all of those details right and the details of the Central Otago water rights, um, which is sort of currently being debated. All of that I needed to get right. If it hadn't been possible, would you still have used it? Uh, no, I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have felt okay in um, kind of bending reality. That, I mean, it's okay to have a, a magpie narrator book. Yeah. That's fine, obviously. But no, if there couldn't have been a cherry orchard there, that would have been completely outrageous. <laughs> um, I wonder too, with research, that it kind of throws up, um, you know, if you haven't if you haven't been there maybe, but you can gather sensory details. I just remember when I was 10, I went to stay on a farm in Bennydale as part of a school exchange, and I got to um, help with the docking of the lambs. Yeah. I'm a city kid from Auckland. Yeah. And I can still remember the sound of yes. the lambs' tails being cut off. Yes, that's something that my husband told me about, actually, the, the sound of it, the hiss yeah. of the, the gas <laughs> gun, gun and, um, and the smell of it. So that's, that's in the book as well. But yeah, also, um, I'm always really interested in language and terminology that's associated with my topic, and that yes. fed the book as well. So, for instance, um, certain farming expressions like um, kill value, um, sacrifice paddocks. Um, the gut hole. The gut hole, yeah. Um, that kind of terminology, um, spoke to the fact that there's this undercurrent of violence in the book that could erupt at any moment. It's always there, even in the words that are used in day-to-day -day conversation, like terminal lambs, for instance, is another one. Um, and, and I love language that is evocative in that way and that kind of suggests the atmosphere you're, you're trying to create, because I think it can work even on a, on a subliminal level with the reader. Yeah. Um, oh. and, and I also found that when I was looking at um, axe terminology, so you know, Rob's a champion axeman, he's obsessed with winning his 10th golden axe in a row at the upcoming Axeman's Carnival. The nine axes that he's already won over the preceding years hang above the marital bed, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> shake when the rickety old house shakes. Um, so I wanted that constant sense of danger. And, and when I was reading about the parts of an axe, you know, there's things like the, the beard and the belly and the cheek and the toe and the heel, and they're all parts of the human body. And to me, that all suggested the way in which the axe is a, is a part of Rob. It's an extension of Rob and, and just a, a metaphor for um, his uh, potential for violence. Also the landscape, I mean, the way you describe it, how it's, how it's incredibly kind of barren and harsh and unforgiving, and you, you see, you see uh, Rob and Marnie's relationship reflected in that landscape. And I just wondered if, um, you know, in, as far as domestic violence goes, what, what extra care do you have to take when you're writing about things like that in a book? Mm. Um. For me, it was really important not to sensationalise it. Um, in the same way as I, when I was writing my um, two books set in Nazi Germany, that I didn't ever want to sensationalise the Holocaust. And so I tend to come at those big topics um, from an oblique angle. And that's where it really helped to have the story told through Tama's eyes. 
um, rather than through Marnie's, for instance. So to begin with, Tama doesn't really understand what's going on in that house, and he kind of keeps saying, well, that's how houses work. You know, that's, that's just how it happens. It's kind of the same sort of savagery as you might find in the wild, and, and I am really interested in how the wild and the domestic are not two separate spheres. They do bleed into each other, and, you know, in the way that Tama is a, is a savage creature who's been domesticated, more or less, um, Rob is a, is a supposedly civilized creature who has this capacity for, for wildness and for savagery in him. Um, so I can't remember where I was going with that. What was your question? Yeah, again? about the care you take writing. Oh, about, about the care. Violence. Yes, thank yeah. you. Um, so Tama becomes more and more aware as the story goes on um, about what is actually happening in this marriage and that it's not right. And he feels this huge duty to protect Marnie. Marnie, for her part, doesn't leave. And I know that's a question that um, women who are in that kind of situation are often asked and are often asked in a kind of judgmental way. Why don't you just leave or why didn't you leave? And I know the answer to that question can be so complicated, but it often involves um, security that if they leave, they will have no capacity for um, supporting themselves, and that's part of it for Marnie. Um, that if they leave, they will inflame the violent partner even more, and that person will come after them and um, maybe even more violent because they're um, even angrier because the woman has left. Mm. So that's part of it too. And it's also often because of the children. And like I said, for Mani, uh, Tama is her child, and she knows that if she leaves, she will be leaving him to rob, and she can't do it. And you have, you actually have uh, the ghosts of Tama's brothers and mother, or the brothers, voicing that to him. They say to him, why don't you just leave? Yeah, yeah, they do. They're, um, they're this kind of Greek chorus who appear at heightened moments in the story, and, and they, do, they do ask him that question, and, and for Tama, it's because he loves Marnie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the empty cot that Tama fills, um, quite literally, is quite personal to you. Um, you dedicate the book to your husband, Alan, and to your little chick, Alice, um, who was a much-wanted baby. Um, how much did your own experience feed into the novel? It's definitely there. Um, between the lines, and it somehow always is in my novels. The lost child, the missing child, the much-wanted child, um, the dead child, and uh, yeah, I think I could draw on that emotion, that you know, could draw on those years of, that we went through of infertility, and then IVF, and finally surrogacy, to have Alice. Um, I, yeah, that, that um, kind of spectre of the empty cot and the child who should be in it um, were very much between the lines when I was writing the story. And um, I, it, again, it's, it's you know, one of those big topics that I don't want to write about head on, mm. but um, talking about it in this sort of fictional way or this oblique way, um, allows me to exorcise that ghost, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. I feel like 
every book that we write as novelists is a wee snapshot of our lives at the time that we write it. Do you look at yours and look back at yours and find the things that were going on in your life? I mean, obviously you took it to the literal extreme with um, The Beat of the Pendulum. Mm -hmm. Do you do it with your other books as well? Yeah, I do. I mean, your own life can't help um, making its way into the story. And, and writers are magpies <laughs> as well. We do kind of seize on um, shiny moments in our lives and, and think, oh yes, I'll, I'll tuck that away or put that in the book. Um, there's a scene in the book where um, Marnie steps on a tiny piece of glass in the kitchen from a broken bottle and um, it goes into the sole of her foot and that's absolutely from you know my own experience from stepping on a tiny piece of glass in our kitchen and I didn't even realise that I was using that a a again until I was reading through the proofs I thought, oh yeah, that's why that's in there, of course, it's because it's, I can still feel it in my yeah, foot yeah. <laughs> it's kind of needling away at me. Um, but Absolutely, there are elements of my life um, in all of my books, even the ones that seem you know, the most distant from my own experience, like the, the Germany books. There's, there's a lot of me and a lot of my life in there. There's a lot of Alan in the X-Men's Carnival, a lot of my husband. Yeah, yeah. I did, um, it, <laughs> I did uh, cannibalize his childhood, as I've said um, before. Uh, a couple of the, the monologues that Rob delivers. So, so the main characters, um, every so often, will just, will just speak and Tama will be there listening and reporting it all back to us. And it's a way of um, kind of making those, three those characters more three-dimensional um, in a book that is just narrated by um, one character and that character's a bird. The other characters do get their voices um, sort of centre stage now and then in these monologue sections. And quite a few of Rob's monologues are from me getting the phone out and saying to Alan, I'm just going to hit record. <laughs> <laughs> tell, me, tell me that story about when you were about four years old and living on the farm and you were dressed in your cowboy costume and sitting out on the porch and the man in the, in the superphosphate truck drove past and you got your little tin gun out and pretended to shoot him, and to your great horror, the man driving the superphosphate truck slumped back in his seat and, <laughs> and appeared to die. Tell me that story again. So, yeah, those little details, and picking mint for money, um, those, those monologues are plucked from Alan's life. I mean, there's so much in this book, I honestly feel like we could sit here for three hours talking about <laughs> it. Um, but we, the time is marching on. It is. Um, yeah. Can we just move sideways a little bit? And could you, because you're involved, or well, you're a founder of the uh, the Sardison Short Story Prize, can you just tell us how you got involved with it, what it is, and why you why you decided to set it up? So uh, I realised that um, you know we'd lost this. Um, Taonga in New Zealand, uh, the, the BNZ Catherine Mansfield Short Story Award, which had been going for decades, and um, it was disestablished, I think, in 2014, was the, the last year that it ran. And um, it was a real shame, because it was such an institution for New Zealand writers, great prize money attached to it, um, good publicity attached to it as well, nothing like a deadline to get a short story finished. And so when I started working um, permanently, as a creative writing lecturer at the University of Waikato, I thought, I'm going to ask the Vice-Chancellor if I can establish a short story prize here. And I was thinking I would have to 
go into battle, because, you know, money's tight. And he just took one look at the proposal and said, yes, that seems like a great idea, let's do it. And, and so, yeah, we now have this wonderful um, national short story competition. It's our biggest, it's our richest. Um, first prize in the open division is $10,000 this year. First prize in the schools division is 2,000. Entries close on the 30th of June, so get, get working, writers out writing. there. Um, and I, I'm so proud that we've been yeah. able to make it happen. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. It's, um, yeah, thank you for <laughs> doing that. Um, so we're going to have some audience questions soon, but um, I just want, I would love it if we could have a wee sneak peek of PET. Could yes. you just give us a little taste of, just first of all, what it's about and what the inspiration was, and it's because it's a psychological thriller, which feels like a new direction for you. Yeah, it is. So uh, this is PET, which is due out with Tehereinga Waki University Press on the 8th of June. We're launching it at Waikato. If you want to come to the launch, um, it would be lovely to see you there. And while Catherine's reading, if you've got any questions you'd like to ask her, if you want to just make your way to the microphones, which are at the... Um, at the front here, and there's also some in the middle of the room as well, and then that way when she's finished we can go straight to questions without waiting. Thank you. Uh, so PET is set in, um, mainly in 1984 at uh, New Zealand Primary School and is told from the point of view of Justine, who's a 12-year-old girl, who um, falls under the influence of this glamorous, charismatic new teacher, Mrs. Price, who comes to the school. And um, like every other girl in her class, Justine wants to be Mrs. Price's pet. Um, a lot of the book is about memory, about misremembering, um, not being sure what we've seen. Um, and there's a, a rising sense of uneasiness around that as the story goes on about, you know, can I trust my own judgment is something that Justine keeps asking herself. Um, so just for reasons of context, um, Justine has epilepsy and that's what's happening um, in this little snippet. A twinge in my temple. I sat up, sat back on my heels, steadied myself. I was fine, fine. But was it the sun? My head felt high and hollow, and I could taste burnt sugar, and no, it wasn't the sun, but my own body about to turn on me again. Hadn't I grown out of it? Hadn't the pills worked? I looked at my hands, and they were strange hands, and the garden was a strange garden, the arum lilies looming at me like birds with skinny yellow beaks, the sky hazy, covered with plastic, and I could hear my mother's voice, though I knew it was not real. I'm home. And here it came, the seizure, thundering through the hot air, knocking me to the ground. When I opened my eyes, I was lying on the couch, facing the deep-buttoned back. I blinked. Slowly, the threads of pale blue and dark blue and white joined into their upholstered pattern. An old-fashioned lady sitting on a swing in a flouncy dress, her waist pulled in tight, her feet the tiniest slippered nubs. Ribbons trailing in the breeze, cherubs, butterflies. I touched my fingers to the bump on my temple. Oh, love, said my father. I was in the garden, I said. Wasn't I? You're fine, everything's fine, he said. How did I get inside? I helped you. Here, drink this. 
I don't remember. The water swishing the taste of blood across my tongue. Um, I have read this book, and you're going to want to read it too, that's all I'm going to say, but you can't read it until next month, is it out? <coughs> is it June? June the 8th, yeah. <coughs> June the 8th, so that's quite soon. Now, do we have anybody at the microphone wanting to ask a question? Yes, over here. Kia ora. Thank you so much, Catherine. I've just been astounded by your books, and I've just finished reading Axman's Carnival, and <coughs> Something that Thomas says towards the end. I'm right over here. Oh, sorry. Um, there you are. <laughs> um, how dare you? How dare you? And I kept looking back through the book, wanting to see where that came from, where he'd heard it from. And for me, your book was about the wild, the domestic. For me, it was about impending climate collapse. And then I was reading, uh, you know, that Greta Thunberg had said, how dare you? Is that who he was echoing? <laughs> um, no, he's actually echoing Rob, and he's saying, don't you dare. So um, that comes from a scene where um, Marnie is trying to get some cute footage of Tama hopping around the marital bed, and... Um, he doesn't want to be caught. Rob wants to throw him out of the bedroom because you can't have a bird in the marital bed, for goodness sake. And um, he's trying to, Rob's trying to catch him. And um, Rob has said to Marnie, don't you dare let that bird stay in here. And so Thomas starts saying, don't you dare, don't you dare, and jumping around the bed just out of reach. So that's, that's where it's from. Um, but it becomes um, his catchphrase. And all the Twitter followers start posting their versions of Don't You Dare, and it kind of becomes this meme. And um, when the, the Tama plush toy is created, they um, need to have recordings of Tama saying his sort of most famous phrases, and they absolutely have to have him saying Don't You Dare. Um, so when you, you know, when you press the toy's wing, it says these things. Um, and so there's this recording session, and Tama says everything else that they want him to say, but he won't say, don't you dare. And so <laughs> it was an example for me to play with this sort of shifting power dynamic in the relationship between him and Rob. So what ends up happening, because he refuses to say it, is that Rob has to say it as Tama. So it's quite emasculating for Rob um, <laughs> to have to do this kind of bird voice that is going to end up being in the, in the toy tummer. And it was also just a really fun scene for me um, in terms of thinking about ventrilo ventriloquism, ventriloquism in the book. Um, so when the toy is finally produced, it's, it's me, the writer, mimicking Rob's voice, mimicking Tama's voice, mimicking Rob's voice. Mm. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I just had a lot of fun with it. But, but you're right, um, there is an undercurrent of, of, of kind of environmental um, catastrophe in the book too, that's a big part of it, um, that there's no water, they're in a state of drought, um, the sheep will die if they don't get a good dumping of rain soon. Rob is absolutely obsessed with the weather forecast. Um, they talk about you know, how there used to be mining there and there used to be water races for the mining that you can still see on that landscape. Um, but there's no gold now. 
And that's another kind of repeated phrase, that there's no gold anymore, meaning that you know, this, this land is mined out, it's barren, um, you can't survive here. Nature is winning, the wild is winning. Mm. That's, as I said, so much in this book to talk about. <laughs> uh, we have another question down here. Catherine, um, I loved your book. Thank you so much. And I also really love Remote Sympathy. Um, Thank you. I wondered if you could comment on what I perceive as a sort of an undercurrent theme running through the book about love and betrayal. You see it in both the bird world where Tama's sister, who does love him, betrays him and traps him. Mm -hmm. And you see it in the human world where Marnie's voice, her sister who loves her, turns out to betray her mm -hmm. and to be in cohorts with Rob. And that's, that sort of just seems to be a theme that sort of, there's other betrayals as well, but um, could you comment on that? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I really love um, that you drew that parallel between those um, kind of sibling relationships because, um, you know, in both worlds, in, in the wild and, and the domestic, the peripheral characters are, um, they tend to be most concerned with, with saving themselves and are quite, selfish and I suppose quite unlikable in a way and um, yeah Tama's sister does love him but she feels betrayed too because um, Tama has left them and he's decided he, he doesn't really want to live as a bird he wants to live with the humans and so um, I think you know, she tries to get him to stay. She tries to convince him to stay, and, and, and he's her playmate. They, you know, they play the leaf game together, swapping leaves, and they sort of get up to all these sort of gymnastics together, um, bumping breasts the way that magpies do if you see them playing. It's quite delightful. Um, and he leaves her. So even though I say um, those peripheral characters are selfish and perhaps unlikable, they're motivated to behave in that way, I hope. You know, I'm justified in, in making them like that. And the same goes with Ange, um, Marnie's sister. She doesn't save Marnie. She doesn't stand up for Marnie. She has a, an idea of what might be going on in the home, and she is concerned about that to a certain point. But then she also kind of withdraws from from meddling in someone else's marriage, the way that people do, we kind of, you know, and, and it's that bystander effect that I was interested in exploring um, kind of on a much larger scale in remote sympathy, that human capacity to, to stand back and to think, well, I, I won't get involved, um, it's none of my business, I'll, I'll, I'll look the other way. That's something that fascinates me, um, the human capacity for uh, willful ignorance, yeah. Thank you, that's a great question. Is there any more questions in the audience? Don't be shy. No? Um, I wonder, can you tell us what's happening next? Because I, I gather you've got a, 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 trip, a trip coming up um, to the UK and you've got PET coming out there. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's in the, in the near future for you? Yeah, so PET's coming out in the UK in um, July. And then the X-Men's Carnival is coming out overseas next year. So PET and the X-Men's Carnival are, are being published um, the other way around overseas. Uh, and then in October, I'm going over to the UK to do some publicity around PET in London and also um, attending the Cheltenham Literature Festival, which is right. a big one. It's the world's oldest first literary festival, so I'm really excited 
um, about that. And I'll also be doing a bit more research for the next novel, mm -hmm. um, which I've finished a pretty decent draft of. It's disgusting, I know. Saying that to other writers, they, they hate hearing that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, you're, you're an inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that one's um, set in a, a version of the UK in 1979 at a mysterious boys home. Oh, no, I can't wait. I mean, the, the, the range in subject matter that keeps coming up is just keeping your readers on your toes um, and probably keeping you interested in the job as well, I imagine. Absolutely, yeah. I, I um, always want to challenge myself with the next book and to do something that I haven't tried before, mm. like writing as a bird, for instance. <laughs> um, or, you know, writing as um, a, an SS officer and and trying to find um, something sympathetic about that character. I, I like challenging myself. We've got time for one more question, and we have one right here. Thank you. Yes, well, this really follows on about the next book. I've read three of your books and love, love them all, but one of the things that's really impressed me is how different the contexts are for each of the books, like a wig maker at the turn of the century in Florida, uh, the concentration camp, and now uh, you know, the Axman's Carnival. Do you deliberately choose different contexts or do they just emerge? Oh, thank you. Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think it really is that um, need to keep myself interested in my work. I know I did write two um, Nazi Germany books, but they feel quite different to me. One's a, a very domestic story and one is sort of stepping inside um, the perimeter of the camp. Um, and the next book uh, after Pet is different again in that it's um, sort of entering into perhaps dystopian fiction, dipping my toe in that, um, in that pond. Yeah, it, it's just the desire to try something new. I, um, when I was writing the Nazi Germany books, I wrote two children's picture books as well, just for a, a change of scene, a change of tone, yeah. Well, it's been a fantastic hour, and we are now out of time. Um, and I hope you all have a brilliant festival. The, the Auckland Writer Festival is such a, a treat, and obviously we're just beginning. Um, you can catch Catherine in more events, um, including one this afternoon on whether AI can write a book or not. And I just want to quickly share with you what happened when I asked ChatGPT to write questions for this. <laughs> see if it could do it, and it came up with how challenging was it for you to write a book about a notorious serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think ChatGPT is coming for my job anytime soon. Uh, Tama can sign books. Yes, Tama will also sign books um, for you. Uh, so <laughs> yes, uh, Catherine's books are on sale out in the bookshop in the foyer, and she'll be happy to sign them for you. Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, we couldn't do what we do without you, without readers, without people coming to festivals, so thank you. Um, and now will you please join me in thanking Catherine. Ka kite anō.